Making It Plain, a podcast dedicated to discussing real issues that impact Black communities, Black families, and Black women. Your host, Dr. Key, is dedicated to discussing Black issues in a way everyone can relate. Making It Plain with Dr. Key is back, and we have Dr. Marvin Childs with us again for the second time. And I wanted to put this together as a follow-up interview for us to be able to talk about some of the current things that are happening um, in the world today with our educational system, um, the undoing of history, so to speak, <laughs> how, how that, how, what things we can look for in the future, how is that really impacting um, Black people right now? And just to get some of your thoughts as a historian mm-hmm. on just all the things that are happening right now. Now, we are situated in Virginia, which yes. is um, Republican-led right now. Um, right now yes. Republican Governor Youngkin. And um, what are your thoughts about what we see in Florida right now um, and the changes that have been made and, and, and how that might impact where we are? Because we're in Virginia. Yes. Do you think, in your professional opinion, do you think that we could see some drastic things like Florida happen in Virginia? That's a great question. Um, and again, thank you, Dr. Key. I really appreciate being able to come back. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, prior to uh, 2021, that was the year I believe Governor Youngkin was elected, uh, Virginia was going the way of California in terms of education. I mean, even in energy policy and climate policy now, uh, I would say Politically speaking, there is a belief that we're going the way of Florida, right? Which is a um, a very Republican state. I believe a million or two more registered Republicans than Democrats. The parties are polarized now, so there's very little middle ground. Republicans are conservative, Democrats are liberal, and so um, I I'm going to be honest. I don't think we're going to go the the way of Florida. It's just demographically, it just doesn't fit. So um, I think a lo- I think well, two things. One, I think. Governor Youngkin got elected uh, because he he really tapped into a growing discontent with Virginia's public education system. Um, he was able to flip a lot of a lot of uh, voters um, to a lot of Democratic leaning voters to vote for him, particularly in Northern Virginia, the Tidewater, Richmond. He won places that hadn't been won for Republicans. I mean, since since what Doug Wilder maybe. Uh, and and so uh, and he only won by 60,000 votes. OK, so he won by a very slim margin and he was able to really tap into the education issue to win him, Mayorkas, uh, as the attorney general and also uh, Winston Sears, who's who's a lieutenant governor here. Um, and so but demographically, if you look at Virginia, um, there are three major hubs. It's the Golden Crescent is what we call it. So you have Northern Virginia, um, which is the D.C. suburbs plus Charlottesville and, and Harrisonburg, where you're currently sitting, um, the Richmond area, so Richmond, Chesterfield, Henrico County, and then to the south, uh, the far south, you have Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Portsmouth, the seven cities or eight cities of the 757. That makes up six and a half of Virginia's nine million people population. So the majority of Virginians live in those three places. And those three places are heavily Democratic, with the exception of the Tidewater, which is purple. Um, And so demographically speaking, it doesn't appear that Virginia will go in the way of Florida. Um, And I think a large part of it is because we get a lot of of Democratic-leaning people from the Northeast, 
from the Midwest to resettle here. So the short answer is we're not going to win Florida if you ask a historian. Um, we're not going to win Florida. Now, um, as far as the administration, Yunkin and, and uh, DeSantis and the way that they are uh, trying to revise history curriculum, I, I can see parallels. I can see parallels uh, between the two. But again, I'm not yet convinced that 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 we're going to go the direction of Florida. I, history may prove me wrong, but Virginia has been mostly a Democratic state since its founding <laughs> as a state. Um, I do think Governor Youngkin, and I've told people this privately, um, I think Youngkin's administration may be the last Republican administration in Virginia. I, I really do believe that. Um, I, I do think Virginia will trend the Democratic going forward. And that's just me putting my political science hat on. Um, and so I hope that answers the question. I, I don't I don't know, you tell me, but but that and the, the, so all those factors coming together, I don't necessarily see us going away at Florida. It may it may feel that way right now, but uh but re- remember Virginia governors can't run consecutive terms. Um so after Yunkin is up, um they'll have to put up someone else to run. Um they being the Republican Party and I'm not sure that they're gonna be able to pull off that trick again. Um to just tap into the you know, discontent with public education, discontent with public education, because that's what won the Republicans the election. I don't think they'll be able to do that again. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced. Mm-hmm. But we are seeing something here in Virginia that has yeah. been a little different, and that is that pushback against anything that's DEI. Now, yes. Have been yes. In, yes. The, in the um, realm of education as far as we see it in Florida, but we yes. do see some remnants of it here. Oh, no. Oh, no. On that. Oh no, absolutely. No, no, no. So there is a there is a nationwide pushback on DEI. Um Virginia, Virginia is uh one of the places where that pushback is happening. Um and so the pushback on DEI, I believe, is this fear amongst Americans that DEI is just code for uh the undermining of American values, right? The you know, the the bringing in of Marxist socialist um communist ideology, right? Um and so and so that that's the fear. I've I've worked with DEI departments um here in Virginia, mostly in Virginia. Um and again won't you know tell who because you know I got to and not that it's a secret or anything, right. but I've, I've worked with public entities and private entities, I'll just put it that way. Right. And DEI departments are not what people think they are. Um They're and not. so Many people believe DEI departments are um, I'm trying to try to make sure I say this correctly. They think that they're just like just angry people who hate America working in DEI departments. Like, oh, America's horrible, and you know, and that, that's that's the first thing from the truth. Um, DEI and they department- also think that it is to undercut the system so that people are getting away with being mediocre, mm-hmm. specifically people of color are getting oh, yeah, away oh, yeah. with being mediocre, not qualified. Um, yeah. Not coming in with the same expertise and experiences that they may have. And yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. That's the biggest lie. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's the it's the belief. It's the belief that um, that you have, like you said, not untalented bureaucrats and administrators who are coming to eat from the eat from the fat that's been created by the abundance that was created before. So you're right. So or so so DEI programs and DEI departments have been looked at that way. I can tell you personally, I've been working with DEI departments. These are people who are highly educated, highly educated, highly skilled people. Um, many of them transitioned to DEI from doing other stuff. So it wasn't like they went to school. Like there is no DEI degree. I'm not exactly. Sure. 
Like, maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. I've worked in universities for a while now, and I don't know of a DEI degree you can get. And so and so many of these people are attorneys. And I mean, one recently that I worked with the DEI department, it was ran by one was an educator, one was a business person. And they and they went into the DEI work uh, as in conjunction with their normal job duties. And And the whole premise behind their work was to create a work environment that was one good for the business or good for the entity. Um, and also to help people have a common cultural understanding of one another. And so, and again, that's my experience in the DEI world. And so when I see people um, saying, you know, DEI is evil, DEI is bad, DEI is evil, DEI is bad. My personal experience, I haven't seen it. Um, I haven't seen it. And I haven't seen, you know, these these um, mediocre people trying to create. I haven't seen it personally. And again, I would dare to say the majority of people who worked with the with DEI programs would say the same. I think the people who are criticizing them mostly, and again, I'm saying I think, are people who have never encountered any DEI uh, program or professional anywhere in the country. And they're not interested in in, in really experiencing and encountering them. They're, they're interested yes. in discrediting them in their work, not yes. really interested in what they're trying to say. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what they're doing is they're trying to create inclusive spaces where everyone can thrive because honestly, that diversity is good for business. It's innovative. It's where the great ideas come in. It's good for business. Yeah. Um, I was I was on my Peloton bike this morning. Yes. And the instructor, oh, yeah, you know, I love I love my Peloton. But they talked about how diverse the community is. And because of that diversity with the writers and with the instructors, they yes. have been able to grow Peloton. Right. Yes. Grow in the community and how people come to that community because they love being a part of it because it's so diverse. Right. So you just yes. think of that model. Like if you actually grab hold to creating safe spaces for all people, it is lucrative. It is honestly lucrative. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, the, the, oh. the spaces that uh, lack that, that are focused more on pushing against, making people feel like they don't belong, making people feel like um, they don't matter. Mm-hmm. They're suffering. Like people are leaving those environments in mm-hmm. truckloads, right? And then they're telling their stories too. Yeah, particularly amongst uh, millennials and Gen Z, right? So so millennials and Gen Z, people forget, historically speaking, millennials and Gen Z, which are the two latest generations, have grown up in the most multicultural era in American life. Um, These are the children of the first generation of Americans who had to integrate schools, workplaces, and everything. So Gen Zers and millennials went to integrated school fully, and as full as you can get in America, right? Fully integrated schools, fully integrated workplaces. And so they desire communities and environments that, that match that. And when they don't get it, they flee. Exactly what you, exactly what you said. And, and another thing that's really important to think, uh, think about with DEI and how they promote diversity and the, and the good of it is that you want to prevent cultural rot. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. So Harvard University was once the largest school in America. It's kind of hard to think of it now, but they were back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so they took on a, a, a president, Charles Elliott was his name. Um, he was a he was an alum, graduated in 1869, I believe, and he took over pres- the presidency in the 1880s. And so with Harvard being the biggest school in the country, having the biggest endowment, was the flagship university in the country, he set about to get rid of cultural rot. And what I mean by cultural rot was when you have too many people from the same background huddled together in positions of power, you tend to get mediocrity, right? Mm. Because 
because people believe that, oh, we're now it creates an aristocracy, an oligarchy, an environment where merit does not matter as much as your last name or your or the pocketbook of your father. Right. And so he set about allowing poor kids into Harvard, black kids in Harvard. That's where W.B. Du Bois came in and he became the first Ph.D. from there um, and a host of black Ph.D.s, not just in Harvard, but in the Ivy League in general. And they spearheaded it with, I mean, what we would now call DEI initiatives um, to allow uh, people of different backgrounds and particularly racial backgrounds and class backgrounds. And it made Harvard one of the leading nation uh, schools in the nation. And so we saw it work for Harvard in the early, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And yet today there are people who criticize DEI work today. It's like, well, no. The idea is you don't want to have cultural rot where everyone comes from the same background and all have eerily the same mindset. And that can lead to the demise of that institution. It can and it will. It historically has. Hell, America was founded on the notion that aristocracy ruined Europe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I mean, seriously, it, it was it was the founding fathers. Um, who who were a bunch of petty businessmen or petite businessmen, um, children of poor farmers who said those rich aristocrats over in England have no idea how to run a country because it was a birthright to them. They, it, it was it was a game to them. It was a toy to them given to them by their fathers. It wasn't something that they took seriously, uh, among other things. It's why they chose to leave. And so it's just funny. I don't know. Today, when people criticize DEI efforts without getting to understand them, it's like, do you understand that DEI efforts, DEI professionals, the work that they're doing is the work that um, that many people throughout the course of time have taken to prevent culture, the cultural rot of institutions. And that is a really, really important facet of, of, of life. You, you have to root that out. You know, and this is my first time hearing a cultural rot, but I see it, right? Because what happens is institutions start to, one, attract students that are just like them, right? So you yes. have um, one culture dominating in in leadership and yes. and as educators across the institution, and then yes. you turn around and you attract students that are just like them. So yes. then you have alumni, yes. students, staff, faculty, and administrators all of the same culture, all thinking the same, all doing the same thing, yes. and then you are stuck in a time period, right, where everything about around you have has advanced. But your environment has not advanced. And then you're fighting to hold on so that it can stay exactly the same. Yeah, entrenched that's, entrance. Yeah, exactly. That's not innovative. Well, no, it's not innovative. <laughs> and and, and his, history tells you that institutions, whether they be public or private, that are not dynamic and in, uh, in, they're not dynamic in the way that they recruit talent and retain talent, they're going to fail. They are going to fail. They have failed, and they're going to keep failing. And that's just the way it works. Um, to fight against it, I think, is to is to fight against the the laws of of human civilization. In my opinion, um, you know, and and again, that's that's just my humble opinion as a historian. But when I when when I think about the DEI question, the DEI criticism, again, I think, dude, DEIs would made Harvard. And again, I'm talking late 1800s. Yeah, um, yes. The efforts it, it's would made Harvard in American universities too. Other universities started to do the same. University of Michigan, Stanford, University of Virginia, um, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, when they begin to diversify who got in and why they got in and diversify their alumni pool, begin to diversify the people in leadership, they became world-class universities. They became great institutions that we could rely upon for social science research, for technological innovation, for business creation. I mean, it opened them up because prior to that time period, American colleges were just social clubs for rich kids. And what did they produce? Nothing. They produced absolutely nothing but but pseudo aristocracy. They just they, they just produced a bunch of 
pompous idiots, many of them, who simply did not know how to run a government. That's why you had to fight a civil war. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to keep the nation and and so and so yeah i'm sorry that i think so far back when i look at this when i look at the present but no, i think it's important right yes. because i feel like now people are holding on to past as as far as where they were and and we get in the in the supreme court rolling back <laughs> rolling back things that were built right like affirmative action not even understanding people don't even understand what that really means what they wrote, affirmative action benefited white women. It was the biggest thing that benefited white women. And to roll it back is not necessarily impacting people of color because what people have of color have learned to do is to make sure that their credentials and their, their, their knowledge is up there enough so they're going to get into the schools, whether there's affirmative action plan or not there. They're going to yeah. get into those environments. Um, so it, the benefit was really for white women. And, well, and, well I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I don't mean to cut you off, but you, you brought up affirmative action, so I guess I got to talk yeah, about let's it. Let's start talking about it because you know we have to go there. Yeah, right. No, no, no. So, so I've spoken to a few of my friends. They're they're black professors at other institutions in Virginia. Won't won't say their names. I don't want them getting hit up by the media or anything. Um, but we we talked about the affirmative action issue right after the ruling came down. Right. And so, um, I, I uh, these are men who are a lot smarter than me. Okay, so I'm going to throw that out there. But they were like, oh, my God, Marvin, you finally you finally got something right. And so what I said was, I said, wow, you know, the affirmative action promise was that um, was that was that American universities and and businesses, too, prior to the 1980s, they would begin to correct the past sins of exclusion by opening up the door to candidates who uh, who were not white and male. And they had the same, if if not the same, better qualifications meritocratically. And I said the the bargain there that civil rights because civil rights advocates asked for that. They asked for that. Um, Arthur, Arthur Fletcher, who was one of the authors yeah. um, of affirmative action, um, who was a black man who served in the Nixon and I believe also the Reagan uh, Reagan cabinet. Don't quote me on that, but it was one of the two. Um, um, but but that was the goal. Um, and so, but the bargain there was that hey, black Americans by and large have to fit the bill and have to meet the bill. And by and large, Black Americans did. Um, the problem with affirmative action and why the court struck it down, in my opinion, was that it uh, it cut the white working class out, right? So so college the college admissions process has been completely rigged since the beginning. First, the college admissions process was just for rich white men. Um, Legacy. But- yeah, legacy. It was it was totally it was totally legacy, mm-hmm. and, and 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 to get um men of men of power and prestige the ability to just be friendly with one another. Then by the early twentieth century, it went to uh to to merit based, solely merit based. However, it wasn't solely merit based because Asians and blacks and women were still cut out in large part um of the credentialing process for doctors, lawyers, engineers, architects, the whole nine. Affirmative action comes in and says, okay. You've had two or three generations of people who have been have been systemically hamstrung by by these policies. So the best black attorneys or the best black legal talent couldn't go to Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Michigan. They had to go to Howard more more morally than more more so Howard than most schools. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. However, it hampered earning potential because uh, because let's be honest, the biggest firms in America weren't going to hire uh, Howard University um, Howard University lawyers. Yeah. Same yeah. thing. 
with black doctors in Meharry Medical School. You can just go down the list. And so and so the promise was, hey, we're going to start opening the door. We're going to start allowing uh, these people acts of, of the piece of the pie in the civil rights era. And and what that did was, well, colleges only have a limited amount of space. They can't let a bunch of people in. They can't let everybody in. And so and so with them carving out spaces for for marginalized minorities, they had to limit space for someone else. Right. That's just the reality of it. And and working class white Americans and I would say middle class to a lesser extent, they 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 got they got sick and tired of the high stakes game of having to donate to schools having to get high SAT scores, higher than average SAT scores. And they pushed and pushed and pushed and they finally knocked the door down. The question is, how do we do uh, admissions now? That I don't know, right? Um, That I don't know. Because the reality is affirmative action was the closest that we ever got to having an, an even playing field. Because the reality is that, say, Latinos, Blacks, um, and uh, well, I wouldn't say white women necessarily, but Latinos and blacks, the education that they're allotted at younger ages is lesser than that of whites on average, yeah. not always in, on average. Yeah. And so affirmative action actually helped them get a seat at the table um, when it came to getting into the workforce, getting those high paying jobs that could sustain a middle class lifestyle. Now that you knocked away affirmative action, what's going to be the next step, right? Like, so how are you, gonna, because are we just going to revert back to the days where no, nobody gets in, right? Like. Again, so sorry, I'm just rambling here. I'm just kind of trying to think this out. Yeah, but that makes but, sense. But 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 I think the affirmative action uh, discussion and the elimination of it so subtly, I, I I don't think that was smart by the court. Now, from a legal perspective, the and here's the thing that I have to admit: the, the court was right from a legal perspective. They were right. Um, however, the court should have at least given schools enough time to build some sort of infrastructure to assure that even though affirmative action is not in place you're still going to have equity-based admissions in place um, to replace it because you can't just get rid of it. And now what's going to happen? Um, you know, are schools just going to stop admitting Black candidates and Latino candidates or kids from poor backgrounds? Or are they still going to admit them? Uh, I mean, I, again, it's just so many things up in the air. And it's, and I think I don't think it was irresponsible about the court because they did what their job was to do. But I do think Americans were irresponsible in trying to tear it down so quickly because they didn't understand exactly what it was meant for and yeah. and and what are going to be the long term ramifications of it. So I'm sorry. you chimed No, in. no, you're right. It's going to be some long term ramifications. But one of the things that I see with affirmative action is people have the assumption that now that affirmative action is gone, we don't have to have that DEI leaders anymore because right oh, after mm-hmm. that happened, they started, yeah. these companies started to fire their DEI people who focused on DEI programming. And I'm not talking about schools and universities. I'm talking about businesses, businesses major yes. businesses. Mm-hmm. What, why would you stop? Like this really had a major impact on uh, college-based admissions. So yeah. why would businesses stop with their DEI work, with their commitment to DEI? And that we've seen that happen. I mean, I, I want to say on one weekend, maybe four Black women of major companies was just all of a sudden out of jobs. So so from what I understand, you're, you're 100% correct. That is That has happened and it is currently still happening. Yes. Um, companies are slowly phasing out DEI. Um, not all at once, but they're doing it. They're doing it in a way that businesses normally do it. Um, and so, what from what I from what I understand is that businesses are afraid of the the, the L word litigation. Yeah. Right, yeah. they're so afraid because once you get rid of the because because affirmative action was was ruled uh, was ruled you know unconstitutional on the Civil Rights Act of yeah. nineteen sixty four. Um, was that you can't have any any sort of policy in place 
that prohibits or advances people based upon race within within um, the public discourse or public or public consumption. Can't do it. Um, and so what a lot of companies I think are fearing, I think, I don't know this definitively, is that if if the Civil Rights Act was used against the universities, it would be used against them with DEI programs because the heads of many DEI um, programs are, in fact, when most of them are women. Um, they're women um, and, to a lesser extent, people of color. And so I think that's what they're afraid of because someone could say, oh, I didn't get this this job in this company um, to work in the DEI office because I was a white male, right? Um, and if enough of them come together and put up a class action lawsuit, what happens, right? Um, you know, you got a huge payout, you got a big hit on your stock, now people are settling, now the business is in trouble, you know? And so I think that's the fear that they have um, more so than anything. Um, I don't think that companies are, and again, I'm just speaking as a historian, but I don't think companies are running away from DEI. I think they're afraid of litigation because litigation is a, that, that is a real monster to deal with, especially if you lose, <laughs> if you lose. And the yeah. other part to it is the hiring. Like we have, we have state and we have federal. We do have federal guidelines that say that we must recruit these diverse populations. We must actively recruit these diverse populations out yes. of the federal guideline. But yes. people are confusing what has happened with affirmative action with this other federal guideline that says we must do this job, right? And so they are also moving away from that. So now if you're not recruiting these mm-hmm. diverse populations, you're not attracting or appealing to these diverse populations. So you're really not hiring these diverse individuals. Yes. Um, and it really, all of this is sending us backwards. We can have um, people not admitted into these schools anymore. These schools can become more uh, just predominantly white schools without even a 3% per people. I, I would say more more white. They're still predominantly white. Because right, right, we're talking about like maybe 3% of them are, are people of color. Um, yes. But these schools are are becoming even more white, but then you're not even hiring representation. So then it's even more. So we're really moving back to that that cultural ride where we actually have a certain population of people and now we are hiring these people. We yes. are training these people. Our alumni are these people and we are now stagnant in this place because everybody thinks the same. Yep. Yes. And so I, I do think the next step, and again, I've thought about this deeply and I, and, 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 and me, I just, I don't trust the government very much. Uh, I mean, I, and, and a lot of my friends are like, oh, you got to stop being so distrustful. I'm like, man, n- name a government initiatives ever have black people. Right. Uh, and so, but, but I do think people on the other side of the aisle, um, and I'm saying people on the left, right. So people on the right have won the affirmative action battle. I would even say war to a lesser extent, because I don't think the court's going to reverse that decision. I think it's done. I think it's finished. And, and I think I think the door of the I think the civil rights threshold has really come to a close from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. However, there is an ace in the hole. And that ace in the hole is um, people on the left are going to have to compel local, state and federal governments to equalize the level of education in poor black and brown communities. Because now with the affirmative action gone, the, the, the idea, the, 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 yeah, the idea is that now all admissions will be merit-based. I don't believe that's going to be the case. It never has been in, in college. It's literally never been. But let's just assume that is. Um, it's going to be merit-based. And from that, you're going to have merit, uh, meritocratic processes by which people are credentialed, go off to businesses, earn a, earn a good living and sustain, uh, sustain and grow wealth over time. Well, where does that start? 
you know, it starts in the primary and secondary education field where black and brown kids are not getting the same education. You can say it's property taxes. You can say it's um, investment by parents. You can place you can place the blame wherever you want to place it. But if you're not going to allow them seats at them as in poor black and brown people seats at the table when it comes to college and when it comes to to uh, to corporate uh, corporate boardrooms and things like that, based on based on past prejudices and past things, that's fine. But in order to even out this this mess that's been created, you're going to have to start providing an equal education at the lower and at the primary and secondary levels. Um, there has to be more investment there. There has to be more investment there to create this, this hyper-competitive environment that that we all want, right? Because we all want this meritocratic environment in college and, in, and to, where, to where race won't be an issue anymore. We want it. And it's like, okay, well, that's what you want. Are you willing to foot the bill? Are you willing to put the resources in places that are going to allow poor black and brown kids to compete and have SAT, ACT, GRE, LSAT, MCAT scores that are just as that is that are damn near that are darn near the same, excuse me, as uh, white and Asian applicants. Um, and I don't think most Americans, especially those who don't like affirmative action, I don't think most Americans are willing to go to that degree. Well, you can't get rid of affirmative action and just let people languish. You got to create some sort of of level. You got to have a level playing field. And I think that's the next step. I think that's how you fight back and say, okay, well, we need more resources for for black and brown schools. Period. We need more resources. We need better teachers. We need better curriculums. We need we need an even playing field. If you're not going to give us an affirmative action spots anyway, okay. But if we need diversity, if we have to have it, and we know we have to have it, every social 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 science study has confirmed it. Okay, let's make black and brown. Let's help black and brown applicants be equal now. Let's help them be equal um, and see where that takes us. Because I, I think I, I think the door is closed on affirmative action. I really do. And, I'm, and this is the argument. I've heard this several times because even bet- Bettina Love is talking about like, if you really gonna, if you're really was, de- if you were, were ever dedicated to this, you will go back into the communities and do what needs to be done there. Yes. But the thing is, I, I think the biggest question is, do you even want us here? Because <laughs> if you don't make, if you don't, if you're not willing to take your commitment to mm-hmm. DEI, Yes. Taking it somewhere to really yes. bridge the gap. What are what message are you really saying? Right. No, no, no. That that that's that's a great point. Um, you know, is it is it a you're using the meritocratic argument to just get rid of black and brown people or 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 underrepresented groups entirely? A cynical person would say yes. And I a know. cynical person would say yes. I know. Um, and, but 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 many you know, cynical people would say yes. Right, right, and and so and so me, I'm an eternal optimist, uh, scholarly. I'm personally, I'm a cynic, but uh, as a as a scholar, I'm optimistic. So I say, okay, well, okay, I I don't want to go that far and say, okay, you just don't want us here. But let's just say they don't. Let's say they don't want us here. It's fine. That's fine. Okay, well, you promised us a fair playing field because you used the Civil Rights Act to get rid of affirmative action. You promised us a level playing field. Okay, well, again, create a level playing field now. Right. So so there has to be an imperative. And I'm saying from government, from from local state and even from private corporations. Right. You claim that you that you're going to invest in and in, um, in diverse in diverse populations, recruiting, retention, development. 
we need to see we need to see some dollar signs now. We know we need to see some programs created. We need we need we need to see this playing field be level because affirmative action was a leveler. It did not put black and many people believe it put black and brown and and women and uh, and other underrepresented groups ahead of traditional white male candidates. It did not. It was a leveler. It, it was a poor leveler at that, but it was a leveler. Okay. And so once you got rid of we, we, now, now we need something else to level the playing field. And so I and so I think that that has to be the new call. Um, and, and if there, and there is no, uh, no response like, oh, we're just going to kind of go laissez-faire, just let people do what they want. And we'll deal, we'll deal with it come admissions time. Or we'll deal with it come job application time. Then at that point, um, you understand full well that, that the fight against affirmative action was what you said it was, uh, that you just don't want us here. And that's, a, and that's at that point, that's when you have to appeal to government. That's when you have to get laws changed, laws passed in Congress at the state and local level. And again, I think this is a long march. I, I don't, I don't think there's a silver bullet to this. Um, I do think it's a long march. And, and again, me personally, I'm neither on this issue. I'm neither right or left on it. What I'm for is fairness. What I'm for is fairness. Um, and, and I believe that the DEI initiatives and companies and universities, affirmative action, the whole nine is about creating fairness in a level playing field. And so I, I say, I say, make them liars, make liars out of um, and, I, and I think that many activist groups, many parent groups um, and people on the left need to make liars out of people on the right because they believe they're liars. They believe it, but they have to prove it now. Um, and it's the same thing with with people on the right, what they did with affirmative action. They they believe for years. And I'm speaking for those on the right who believe for years that affirmative action took away spots from from overly qualified. Um, it was Asian applicants who actually ended it, but white males and, and Asians and so they had the evidence on their side. The court ruled on their side. Okay, so they pr- so they proved affirmative action to be what they believed it to be. Now it's your job to respond. Um, and now you have to respond. We need a response. You need a response. You you have to respond now. Um, and the response is what we've just been talking about is okay. We're, we're going to make a level playing field. And if you're not going to help us make a level playing field and you're not interested in building a level playing field, now we now we know we have to run the government. That that isn't that hasn't that been the tale of black Americans uh, since they got here uh, into the country was, um, you know, we black Americans and, and I'm speaking from post slavery to the present. They didn't want to run to the government, but black Americans didn't didn't want the federal government to come in and with the Freedmen's Bureau after slavery. They didn't want Congress to come in with reconstruct. They didn't want these things. But when white Southerners refused to 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 allow a biracial uh, equal biracial society to exist, that's when they called on the government. Same thing with Jim Crow. Um, black Southerners didn't like the federal government any more than white Southerners did, um, and even Northerners and people out west. But they said, okay, with the passage of, of disenfranchisement laws, segregation. Um, discrimination in the job market. We're going to go to the government now because the government, uh, ironically, the American Constitution creates a creates a system to where progress will happen, and people vote the right way, and people get legislators in office who will again follow the credo of the Constitution. You're going to get. We got the civil rights movement out of it, and it and and damn it, it worked. <laughs> it, it worked right, and so. People on the people on the other side are going to have to respond, and I think this response is going to have to be a multi-decade effort. It's going to suck for those who are who are now in this non-affirmative action world. There are going to be people lost and left behind. But hell, there were people who lived in a Jim Crow world who never got to see integration. There were people there were people who never got to see Barack Obama become president, but they worked towards it. And 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 I and I think that's the next step for people 
who are disenchanted by the affirmative action ruling. It's time to go to work now. It's time to go to work. Thank you for that. And I think I think we'll end right there because I think going to work as our next step, everyone together working towards change is mm-hmm. a good place to, to end because people are trying to figure out what do we do with this? Oh, now it's just over. And I think sometimes we just get so caught up in those emotions. How we're being treated um, that makes us kind of hopeless that that anything will ever change. Um, but going to work, using that as fuel, yes, to push and move forward is so important. And there's a lot of scholars out there um, mm-hmm. that are actually doing that. They're creating communities of yes. people who are ready to do the work, and uh, yes. it's a good place for us to end. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. And before we end, I mean, I, there are two things uh, with the going to work thing. So I think for one. Um, you, you mentioned this earlier, businesses that are more diverse and can foster a community of diversity, they thrive better than those that don't. Yeah. And so now that we're in this ultra free market that is appearing to be less committed to diversity because of, of the recent events, companies that truly believe in diversity now, they got a free market now. So if you're a company that you believe in diversity, go go do diversity. And if you're winning and you're making money, like you mentioned with, with Peloton and the way they've grown their base, guess what? Other companies will follow. They will. They, they will have no choice. And, and I think with education in particular, is that um, is that in black and brown communities where the education is subpar, um, you're going to have to have um, local school districts. You're going to have to have parent groups. I mean, we're talking grassroots here. Um, and they're going to have to say, okay, what are what are our math scores? What are our reading scores? Okay, these are the numbers. Here's where the average white, majority white schools are in the state. We need to get that number now, right? So by hook or by crook, whether we are spending late nights doing math club, whatever the heck we got to do. And, 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 and here's, the, here's the reason why I say that is because once you, once you get them equal, right, once you get black and brown kids equal to the white students and they apply for college, if the black kids and Latino kids are not getting in at, at the pre-affirmative action ruling date clip, right, the 4%, the 3%, yet they have the scores to get in, you got a case on your hands now, right? right. You got a compelling case. You have to make a case, right? Yeah, you and, and so and so you're gonna have to do with with the affirmative action um, plaintiffs did. You're gonna have to do with the uh, Roe v. Wade, um, which is that was recently overturned. You're, you're gonna have you're gonna have to do the legwork that they did because it took. I mean, there have been people, and again, not to extend this conversation any longer, but it took to overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, it took like what, like sixty years. Yeah. Uh, um, and the same thing with the with affirmative action. I mean, it took so many court cases, and it took decades to get affirmative action to, uh, uh, knocked away. So, so I don't want people to just think that all it took was, say, the election of of Donald Trump in twenty sixteen. And it took him nominating and getting Supreme Court confirmations that that's how it ended. That that is a that is there's some truth to it, but that's a lazy take. The real take is the uh, the people on on the right side of the aisle, they built up a case over decades, time after time to get to this point to where they were able to knock down the final pin. People on the left are going to have to respond the same way. And sadly, that's that's the that's the way things work in America. (laughs) And so, and so I'm sorry. So I'm just going to turn it over to you. No. But yeah, that was just my final Thank piece. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for listening to Making It Plain with your host, Dr. Key. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Sparkman Key Consulting, LLC. 
Check us out at www.thedrkey.com. This episode is sponsored by Belinda B, the original boss bag designed for women on the go. Visit bbbossbags.com. 